Welcome to TNT with Teresa Quinlan and Reese Thomas. We are friends from across the pond on a life evolution. We want to bring you topics that challenge your status quo, guests that help you think differently, and nuggets of wisdom that spark being. Being what? You. Authentic you. Hello, TNT listeners. Thank you for plugging into this episode. It's a unique one, one I had the honor of hosting with two incredible human beings, Tessie Castillo and Terry Robinson, also known as Chanton. To record this episode, Chanton, who is incarcerated on North Carolina's death row, currently fighting a wrongful conviction, needed to dial in via conference through Tessie's phone in order to join. Twice. Why twice? because there's a 15-minute limit on phone calls. I've chosen to leave the audio running throughout the entire conversation so that you could receive the full emotional experience that Tessie and I also got to experience. Tessie Castillo is an author, journalist, and public speaker who specializes in stories on criminal justice, drug policy, prison reform, and racial equity. She co-wrote her first book, Crimson Letters, Voices from Death Row, with four men serving death sentences in North Carolina, whom she met while volunteering at North Carolina's Central Prison in 2014. Chanton is a member of Tessie's writing program, and when not writing stories to challenge the stereotype of people on death row, Chanton unwinds in the pages of fantasy novels or hosts Dungeons and Dragons role-playing games. He is currently working on an urban fantasy novel and his memoir. His writing can be found on the blog Walk in those shoes. We have Tessie here now, and Chanton will be joining us shortly. Welcome to TNT, Tessie. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having us. You're welcome. It's really, really a big pleasure. And now our listeners know that sometimes we have conversations with our guests beforehand to get to know them and understand where they're coming from, what their story is, what they're passionate about. And your story really hit a chord. I'm very excited for our listeners to be able to get to know you and your story. So your passion and obsession, the work that you're doing right now, we know that these things often come from our experiences, our life experiences. So please share with our audience how all of this started for you. My introduction to death row started totally by accident as happy things also often do. Uh, in 2013, I was attending a Super Bowl party here where I live locally. And I'm not really much into football. So I was just kind of hanging out near the food and hoping it would be over soon. And a gentleman happened to approach me and we struck up a conversation. It turns out that he worked inside of central prison specifically with men on death row. And he was a psychologist who had been working for many years to try to advocate to get classes brought into death row. Uh, up until that point, North Carolina has had the death penalty for as long as we've been around. And death row was a totally isolated unit. There were no classes, no education, uh, no weight room equipment, no phone access. The men were only allowed to make one 10 minute phone call per year around Christmas time. And so it was just completely cut off from the rest of the world and the rest of the prison as the men waited to be executed. 
And so he'd been lobbying for many years to, to try to change that, to bring classes in, to try to convince the administration that the men who often languish on death row for 10, 20, or 30 years before the executions take place, that they can change and they have changed and that there's value in assisting that. And finally, after many years, he'd been successful in getting new classes uh, to come in. And so uh, he, they were getting classes like yoga and art class and mindfulness and healing and restorative justice and art. And I volunteered to teach a writing class. And I actually got approved. <laughs> it took about a year to get approved as a volunteer, but I was invited into the prison, into death row. And I'll never forget the first time I went in there, the prison is huge and it's just like a labyrinth. There's all these corridors that you have to walk down that are interrupted by doors that open and close without anyone touching them uh, just on their own. And so you just walk down these corridors and all these big, heavy metal doors clang shut behind you. And you go deep, deep, deep into the belly of the prison before you get to death row where everything is painted red to symbolize the crimes uh, that the men are, are convicted of. They're all convicted of murder and the men have to wear red jumpsuits as well. And so I went into this tiny little windowless classroom that they had in there uh, and sat down and the guys came in. It was about 20 or so men who signed up for my class out of the roughly 140 that are on death row. And I remember them just sitting down in a circle around me on these little chairs. And I was kind of looking at them and they were kind of looking at me. Like we were just sizing each other up. Like, what are you doing here? <laughs> uh, it was really nerve wracking at first, but I started working with them and I had designed the class to be a reflective writing class. So I wanted them to write about how they got to prison, what circumstances in their lives had brought them there. And more importantly, what had they done with their lives after the conviction? What gave them purpose and meaning? How did they spend their time? And so they started writing. At first, it was kind of hard to get them to be vulnerable. And it took a while to, to win enough trust for that to happen. But what I discovered from them was just incredible. I mean, their lives had honestly been very normal uh, before coming to prison. They, they weren't a lot of fantastic stories of incredible violence or dysfunction. They were actually quite normal before coming to prison. And then since then, they spent an incredible amount of time really reflecting on who they were and why they were there. And they had, many of them, discovered a meaning and a purpose to their lives, even under a death sentence. And so I was really moved by that. And I wanted to share those insights with other people. I didn't want to be the only person who sort of knew the truth about who's on death row. So I wrote an editorial to the local newspaper and I published it talking about what I had seen and basically saying that the people on death row are not the monsters that the public often imagines them to be. And within about a week, I received a letter from the warden of the prison, a very terse letter telling me that my services were no longer required and they canceled my class and banned me from not only that prison, but all of the prisons in North Carolina. 
So after that, I started writing to the men who had been in my class. I wrote them letters and I asked them to keep in touch because I wanted to continue to help them develop their writing and, and to learn more about their stories. And after maybe a year or so of corresponding very frequently with several of them, I proposed the idea of putting together a book of essays which tell their story, their lives before prison and their search for purpose and meaning after their conviction. And that was Crimson Letters, the book that we published in uh, 2020. See, everybody, I told you that when you listened, you might be like, oh my God, that is incredible. So there are a few questions that immediately came to mind as you were sharing the story is, what do you think it is about the arts that is so conducive or powerful for recovery, transformation, healing, change? Because it sounded like a lot of the things that were brought in were, were of the arts or related to the arts in some way. Yes, they were. Um, I think art is, it's about self-expression. And when we keep all of these traumas and these things locked inside of us and locked inside of our bodies, then they just kind of fester and they hurt us. But when we let them out, then they're, they're released uh, and we can release those burdens and we can grow. But for a lot of people, talking about things is not the, the method that's the best for them to get things out or it's not something they have available in the very little in form of therapy inside of mental health. Um, so art is a way to express oneself and to get those things out that's um, more socially acceptable to a lot of people and allows them to do it without really feeling like they're doing it <laughs> or without it being difficult. It just comes naturally. Uh, so everybody kind of has their own expression. One of my co-authors is an incredible poet and that's how he really gets things out is through poetry. And I have another one who's a, a musical artist and he writes lyrics and he sings. And so they're all doing the same thing. They're all telling their story, but to be able to do it creatively and, and expressively through the different art form that speaks best to them, uh, I think it's just a way that they release things that they might not be able to release otherwise. That's so beautiful, so right, so makes sense, because I think we can probably all relate to how we engage in creative expressions, whether we paint, bake, do photography, garden, write, music, dance, so many different things that we could do as a creative expression. It is a release. It's also, I think, a medium in which we really get to know ourselves. Like, who am I? The existential question. Yeah. And despite our surroundings and circumstances, oftentimes when we're in that space of creativity, it's almost like we're buffered from the environment for the moment mm -hmm. that we're in it to really be able to pay attention and unlock and understand ourselves and figure some shit out, for lack of a better term, mm -hmm. figure some yeah. stuff out about ourselves that allows us to be able to come into who we truly are. How many times had you walked into the belly of that prison? I don't know, a few dozen. How you describe the sensation of the surroundings I can't imagine them. I can't imagine what that would feel like to be in once a dozen mm -hmm. times 
every day of your life for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Did you find yourself becoming desensitized to it? Um, yeah, I think that, that that definitely happens when you're just exposed to trauma like that over and over again, you have to protect yourself. Uh, it, it felt like descending into a dungeon every time I went down, just further and further down into the dungeon. So yeah, I, I definitely did that. And, and I have on some level had to continue to do that because I've worked with these men for years now, for seven years. And I hear them tell their stories and write their stories over and over and over again. And there's a part of me that has to disconnect from it and see it as a story just to protect myself. <laughs> mm-hmm. So how do you do that? How do you disconnect? I'm actually pretty good at disconnecting. Um, <laughs> I think for me, connecting is, is often the harder thing. I'll just disconnect automatically. It's a, it's a defense mechanism I've used since I was a child, I think. Um, and I'm only more recently as an adult going through therapy and trying to learn how to, how to feel things instead of how to automatically shut them off. That's exciting. Coming from the world of emotional yeah, scary. Scary as hell. <laughs> yeah. Super exciting because you open yourself up to feeling. You get to feel all of the emotion. Yeah. So there's a lot of good stuff that exists in there too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> if we follow that thread, what has been the impact of this experience to you personally? Whew. It's had a huge impact on me. I think in one way, I spent most of my life running away from pain, uh, which is why the, the shutdown kept happening. And this experience has taught me to lean into pain. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because I noticed when I work with men in prison who have gone through so much intense pain in their lives and have also caused so much intense pain to other people that they tend to to separate along a spectrum into two camps, into the ones that constantly try to run from it and just keep it away as much as they can, whether through drugs or just spending all day watching TV or lashing out all the time. They're just running away from this pain. They have a very strong victim mentality. Why is this happening to me? Why is my life so, why am I so unlucky? Um, and they're completely destroyed by it. They're, they're broken in every way that a human can be broken. And then the ones who lean into it and who accept it and embrace it to an extent are the ones who are able to overcome it. And they have grown on a level that I don't see people in the free world grow very mm-hmm. often. It's hard to describe. It's like some of the people on death row who've been through that like pressure cooker of pain and struggle for so long have been able to emerge as almost like next level humans Mm -hmm. uh, that they have a greater insight and wisdom and capacity for reflection than most people I know outside prison who've never had those tools to work with and so I've tried to be less like the ones who run away and say why is this happening to me? And more like the ones who say, how can I learn from this? There are different ways in which we can create our own cages, mm-hmm. whether we commit a crime. And so we're prosecuted, we're put into jail. We've 
done something that's created a cage or whether we run away from pain, lock ourselves into our own despair. It's, it's a cage. It may not be a physical one we can touch because it's not made of metal, but it's still a cage that locks us off from the potential of who we are, who we can be. Marianne Williamson has a poem called Our Deepest Fear. Have you heard of this poem before? No. So maybe look it up. It's excellent. Okay. <laughs> In that it describes our deepest fear is not that we are not worthy, not lovable. It's that we are. It's that we are magnificent and worthy of all of these things and worthy of love and acceptance and belonging. And we are completely awesome and go and be awesome. We fear that. In your own experience of fear, what are the ways in which you manage your own fear in order to continue to lean into these things that are difficult? Well, I do go to therapy every week and I try to make sure to prioritize creating a lifestyle and a space for myself where I feel healthy enough in other areas of my life that I'm strong enough to face the fears. So I'm very diligent about self-care things, like just simple things, eating healthy, exercising daily, getting enough sleep, making sure that I spend time with people I love every week, being outside as often as I can and limiting the number of hours that I spend working on these kinds of things. And I find that when I'm able to do that and I'm able to be as sort of my best self, my healthiest self, then I can handle the, the dirty work and the fear that goes on every time I have to, to deal with these issues. We need like props on that around the applause. <laughs> we need the, the, the finger snaps. We need all of the ways that we can celebrate that as, I mean, you said the simple things and then we take a look at every individual who struggles with their sense of well-being and the pillars of well-being are not in place sleep exercise nutrition spending time with loved ones spending time in nature like it's so simple it is simple in its definition difficult for people in execution and difficult because of that sense of like worthiness i'm worthy enough to dedicate time to my self-care to be the best i can possibly be so i can step in and do difficult things because turns out life is a bit difficult and I'm going to have yeah. to time and time again, step into the difficult things. Yeah. It took me a long time to learn that though. It really did. Yeah. Well, the circumstances of how we're raised, what we're taught, the model behavior around us, the trauma that we experience as individuals, our personality, all of those things really do influence and impact our ability to step into that space and know that that's where we are. And the sooner we can provide that for people, the younger we can provide that for people, the more beneficial the whole planet will be, of course. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Except power gets in the way. As you experienced in this journey and story is power stepped in the way because they didn't like something and they like, oh, we need to stop that. Mm -hmm. So they use their power to manipulate and coerce, which we're pretty well aware of. That's how a lot of things operate. Mm -hmm. So we're getting close to when Chanton will be, will be joining us and the- He's calling actually. He's calling, excellent, here he comes. Yeah. Global Tel Link, prepaid call from- Terry Robinson. An inmate at Central Prison. This call will be monitored and recorded. 
for customer assistance, collection, or complaint procedures, or to block future calls, dial one eight six. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. I wasn't sure if I if I got you this morning. It rang, it rang a couple of times, so I was about to call, back, uh, but it's good to hear your voice. You got us. Yes, you are. You're on uh, with Teresa. Hi, gentlemen. Hi. Welcome to our conversation and our podcast. How are you? I'm well. Um, there's always things going on, especially with like recent news and um, recent events and family, those things. But for the most part, um, I can't complain. So thank you for asking. Oh, you're welcome. Tessie has spent the last 15 minutes really sharing her journey, her story, how she's gotten to this space. We've been discussing the impact for her and really excited to asking you a few questions around what it's been like for you. So I'm really wondering if you can describe to us the beginnings of this experience for you in meeting Tessie and getting involved in writing. Okay, sure. So um, I received my, I received my death sentence. I don't know if I should introduce myself, so, but I am Terry Robinson and most people call me Chantonis. I won't say it's a moniker. Um, it's an attribute. It's really personal, a really long story, but it's what I prefer, especially, um, during my writing. And so it just kind of gives clarity to identity. And a lot of people wouldn't understand that even if I, tried to explain it. So my experience on death row started in 2000, in April 2000. I received the death penalty in a city called Wilson, North Carolina. And when I first got here, I had all these like, expectations. I had only heard the word death row a few times in my life. I'd seen some movies that depicted death row, but I'd never even fathomed what a real life experience would be like. So I can remember on the way here, I just had all these expectations, like you know, the things that I that I kind of anticipated would happen, and my response to those things. And so when I first walked onto death row, the first thing I noticed was the size. It was like really, really small, especially in comparison to now. I shouldn't really draw a comparison to our current place of where we reside, but when I first got there, there was this dorm, and it was like really. It's like it's like a tuna can size. It was just so small, and I couldn't imagine a person doing a week of incarceration inside this block, let alone some years. And some of the guys came up and introduced themselves to me. I guess they could see the look on my face. I was so nervous and displaced and didn't know what to expect, so they kind of eased that by giving me the some basic instructions and kind of putting my concerns to rest. And then I went inside of my room and unpacked some of my property. And then I got busy learning to be a death row inmate. And for the next several years, I had to acclimate to some of the harsh and torrid conditions of being a death row inmate, which meant that same spot, that same small block and dorm that I saw, we never left. And we did have recreation, but it was only one day a week. And it was usually called so early in the morning, like 6 o'clock, 6.30 in the morning, a lot of times the guys didn't bother to get out of bed and go to recreation. So there was hardly any rec. 
Um, the TV, it was an old, outdated TV with this box around it, like a cage. Um, it was a analog TV. There was no remote, so you had to turn it manually. It was just all these really strenuous conditions that I had to get used to when I first came on death row. So now we are how many years into being within this environment and then Tessie comes along? I had been here personally about 13 years at the time I got in. I arrived here in 2000. And I think our first programs, we started with a pilot program and it was awesome. It was a commercial cleaning program, but still a lot of guys showed interest. And once the administration saw some success, saw some interest from us guys, then they implemented other classes, and that was around 2013. And I think Tessie came the very end of 2013, um, right into the 2013 and 2014 year. And we were together for a couple of months during a journalist class, but then something took place with myself, and I was on segregation for about 50 days, and during that time, something took place with Tessie in an article that she was dismissed. By the time I was back in population. Tessie was gone. And I remember like immediately missing that that structure, um, and those instructions and that um all the things she had to offer. Like just the sense of mind that the programs and the class was providing for me at the time. And I just remember how much I dreaded missing that. And then maybe two or three weeks after my segregation I got a letter from Tessie. And she also expressed her, her apologies for some actions that she had taken with an article, but she also showed interest in continuing our um, our process. And I just thought it was tremendous that I, I, I couldn't determine what the experience was like for her, but after it was over, she could have just like long gone and moved on with her life and forgotten all about us. But she showed this determination to... Um, maintain that connection with us and and keep our our experience, our writing experience alive. So it showed me how much writing meant to her and the gift that she had given us. Yeah, sometimes referred to that as finding your calling, finding your purpose, and then saying, nothing's going to stop me. I'll find a way to accomplish what it is that I'm meant to accomplish. It does take a lot of passion and desire and commitment and dedication to do that. And man, are we ever grateful that it was her calling, aren't we? <laughs> we are. Yeah. Um, so, Chanton, how does your life and your life experiences influence what you write about? I can remember even as a child um, admitting to something that I had done wrong to my mom. And I just remember how relieved I felt because before I had um, admitted it, I just had this great sense of guilt like because she believed in me, and I was her son, and I didn't lie, I didn't steal, and all those things. So I can't remember quite what it was that I had taken, but I remember just having that sense of relief when I got it off my chest. And when, once I was outside of the house, I did develop other habits and behaviors. A lot of those consisted of hiding my faults and my flaws. And then I grew into that as a man. I didn't know how to be myself. And so I had become this walking cliche, man. I mean, I was putting forth this image and this projection of who I was, but in my head and in my heart and in some of my discreet actions, it's not the man I was living up to. And so I, that followed me here on death row. 
and I'm a man who is facing and fighting a wrongful conviction. And it was during those times, during some of those darkest moments, that I had to come to terms with myself. How did I contribute to my current state? I don't think Defo was just inadvertent. I don't think it was an accident. No one pointed a finger at me because I was such a bad guy. I think my journey to Defo started long before the night of my accusation. And I felt I owed it to myself to figure out what that was. Because I didn't want to be the man on death row screaming um, about my innocence just to receive some relief and make it back to the streets. And nothing about who I was had changed. So I felt I owed it to myself to, to soul search. And some of my first essays, when I wrote about accountability, it took me back to a place of relief um, that I remembered when I was younger. And I've just kind of been on that high ever since. So for me, it's about taking accountability for the things that I've done so that no one else can define me by my faults. There's so much power in what you just said. A couple of things. Number one, accountability. I have wrongdoings. I did things to get myself to this position and I have to own those kinds of things. And the the second thing you said in there is I owed it to myself to do that. It's really powerful to know and for people to hear is we're deserving of that. We're deserving of holding ourselves accountable and stepping into what I've come to call hugging the cactus, the prickly parts of ourselves that we don't particularly like, we have to embrace because that's how we get to know ourselves fully and truly and can unlock ourselves into who we're really meant to be. So what did you find out when you started to hug the cactus? What did you learn about yourself? Well, first I learned that being flawed is a normalcy, that I'm undeserving of perfection. And for all those years that I projected um, this perfect image, I realized that I wasn't being true to my humanity. So the first thing I did learn that it's okay for me to be flawed. In fact, it's expected because we all are. And I think one thing I learned is that uh, the most prominent thing is that I had just lived an, an entire life um, trying to be everything for everyone, and I was never enough for myself. And I was just really tired of it. It was it's so draining and so daunting to always put others first, like everyone, my mom and my kids and my friends and society and just everything. But it was never enough for me to put myself first. And I know a lot of it had to do with um, a lack of confidence and some insecurity that was there, some underlining um, issues that I had from my childhood that I never resolved. So a part of my writing is this process of traveling back to my childhood and facing circumstances renewing those circumstances so that I can have a different outlook and a different perspective. I know some of those things are in the past and the decisions can't be changed, but if I can learn from the errors that I made in my past, then I feel like I have a really good shot at a promising future and not making those same mistakes again. Beautiful, really powerful, powerful for everyone to hear. I I can just imagine our listeners like nodding along. Yes, exactly. I feel the same way. I experienced the same thing. It's universal. I think it's universal, this kind of experience of self-doubt that we might be worthy enough or good enough. What do you think? So a part of this, I mean, we know that America is the land of the free, but a part of, a part of that dream is being idolized. And we not only just strive for freedom and liberation, but we strive for popularity. 
we strive for acceptance. And it's just part of the American way. I, also, I do think there is a chain in the dynamics of society that needs to be broken because I do see a lot of, I mean, even with recent and current events like white supremacy, people who can't get past this mindset of being superior over, over another race. My biggest concern is what lies beneath the subliminal to make a person feel that need to be superior. Why can't being equal be enough? Why can't treating people with equality I mean, and respect be enough? So for me, I think there's this underlying issue with popularity and being idolized that we need to challenge and certainly change the narrative on that before we can get back to... You have 60 seconds remaining. Being common and decent and down-to-earth people. Yes, agreed. Can you call back, Shantan? I can, sure. Okay. Thank you. Okay, Teresa, yes, I only have a few seconds. I'm going to hang up, but I'll call you back. Absolutely. See you soon. All right, so he'll just have one more call then. They're 15 minutes. It's fantastic. He's fantastic. Well, I know. <laughs> I know you know. I know. <laughs> when you had said earlier, he's fantastic. I can't wait for him to come. Like, okay, I can't wait to. <laughs> Yeah, I love these moments where I'm just listening to him talk to a new person who hasn't had the experience of Chanton before and watching the face of the other person and just knowing that you see what I see now. Mm. And that's a very validating moment for me. <laughs> oh, that's terrific. Here he is. This is a global tell link. Prepaid call from Carrie Robinson, an inmate at Central Prison. This call will be monitored and recorded for customer assistance. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. Hey, I'm back. Welcome back. So, Chanton, I am probably most interested. Everything you've been talking about and everything you've been sharing has been really resonant within my heart and as a human to human being sharing our stories is really so powerful and what i've been waiting to ask you and i can't wait to actually hear your answer to is often our life circumstances can send us into a rabbit hole of despair and your circumstances are much more dramatic and traumatic than many of us will ever have to encounter or endure for the length of time that you have had to. So how do you maintain hope and optimism? This answer is so, I mean, it, 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 is, it is something that I've said in the past and it's, I'm noticing now that it's repetitive, but it is the foundation of my resilience here and being able to um, endure such grave circumstances like death row. And it's because I had a loving mom. Um, she, was, she was a single mom, but I grew up and I always, when I was young, I didn't fully understand the sacrifices that she made for her children. It wasn't until later that I realized that um, she would give us the best of things and then just kind of go without herself so that there was this uh, environmental poverty and uh, lack of resources that didn't always touch my siblings and I. And it was because of the love that my mom had for her children. 
and the sacrifices she was willing to make. And so my mother and I have a great relationship. Again, when I left the household, there were some things because of my insecurities that I didn't always know how to, to reveal to her. I didn't know how to confront her about some of the things I was going through. But since I've been here on death row, I mean, she's not only my mother, but she's my confidant and my best friend, and I tell her everything. And so I felt as though not only did I have an obligation to be strong and, and, and rise against this adversity uh, for my mom's sake, but also my kids as well. So one of the things that really gives me this drive to endure is just um, family morals and knowing that my incarceration and my adversity is not mine alone to face. That's a really powerful lesson. We don't ever know the whole story. We don't ever know someone's whole story. And our ability to shelf or reserve judgment and choose to lead with love it's a really powerful lesson for us to continue to hear over and over and over again, because it's something I think that we need to hear over and over again is when do we find ourselves judging someone, judging their action, deciding we know who they are and why they are, when the truth is we often don't. We have our perspective, but that's just our perspective. And often it's really a flawed perspective. How we like to wrap up our conversation on this podcast is one to make sure like, how can people get in touch with you? How can people find what you're writing about? Tessie, how can people get involved? Uh, well, we have a free book club that we run, which is a great way for people to get involved. You can sign up on my website, tessiecastillo.com. And we meet over Zoom once a week for five weeks. And at every meeting, one of the four co-authors calls in, just like Chantan is doing now. And you get the opportunity to ask them any question that you want and to have a real conversation back and forth for about an hour. Um, so we love doing the book clubs and it's totally free. You just have to sign up. You can also buy the book, an autographed copy from the website. And all of my writing is on the website. And I'll let Chantan tell you where to find his writing. So I do write for a site called walkinthoseshoes.com. It's a blog based out of Virginia. I also have been working on a memoir. I'm not sure where the publishing right. I'll probably publish, publish it, um, self-publish it through Amazon. And I'm also in the works of um, finishing up a fantasy book that I'm really excited about. And I hope you guys like it. So you can check me out at walkingthoseshoes.com. Wonderful. Well, to I'll totally make sure in the show notes how to get in touch with you is available for our listeners so they can do that easily. We also like to end with a rapid fire Q&A. <laughs> Some interesting <laughs> questions around our emotions, our dreams, and our future goals. I'd love for both of you to answer and we'll do ladies first. So Tessie, you answer first and then Chanton, you could provide your answer. Question number one is, which emotion catches you off guard most often? Desire. Anger. Question two, what do you do to regulate that emotion in the moment? I don't think about it. <laughs> Compartmentalize? Put it away. Yeah. <laughs> I 
Um, so I've learned through some practices of meditation to take a deep breath and have a moment's dialogue with myself. Sometimes I realize that that emotion is spontaneous and sporadic, and if I just settle with it, give some kind of focus and attention to it, that it immediately goes away. So for me, it's just paying attention to it and giving some dialogue to it. Yeah, a much healthier response. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a strategy for you. You could use that one. Yeah. <laughs> Question three: What's next in your personal evolution? I'm writing a memoir actually to help me figure some things out. Um, I would say forgiveness. Forgiveness is um a never-ending journey, and I'm still learning to do that effectively. Number four, when your best friend is having a meltdown, what do you say to them? I'm here for you. So it's, it's crazy. This is a circumstance that happened before. I saw this nurse here that was crying and I didn't know what to do. And something compelled me to just tell her that regardless of how bad things are, just remember that things can always be worse. Sometimes it helps me to put things in perspective. Yep. Amen to that. And last but not least, in this moment, what are you most looking forward to or most hopeful for? Um, the summer. The thing I'm most hopeful for is an effective judicial system that no longer puts innocent people in prison. That's something we just cannot tolerate as a society, as an evolved people. No innocent person should ever be put behind bars. So for me, it would be an effective judicial system that gets it right. It's been a really powerful conversation for me and I'm a better person for it. I'm so grateful to having met you, Tessie, and for your introduction to Chanton. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be here, to share your story, your wisdom, your life lessons. I appreciate you both so much. Thank you. Thank you, Teresa. It was great having you. There's a, a guy who, Dr. Parker, we do follow interviews, so hopefully we can do something like that in the future. Mm -hmm. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to this episode of TNT. Please share, subscribe, rate, and review. And when you're ready for your personal evolution, check out Reese at trueselfcoaching.com. And for your emotional intelligence revolution, check out Teresa at iqeqtq.com.